Hello, you are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. Growing up as I did in conservative Southern Baptist churches, I didn't know anything at all about liturgical worship, about the Mass, about the Christian year, or a thing called the lectionary. It wasn't until my different times at seminary that I had experiences with churches that used the Christian year. It wasn't until I was teaching worship, preaching, and Christianity in the arts in a college that I gained a fuller and deeper understanding of the Christian year and the revised common lectionary. When I became a full-time pastor, it was the first time that I embraced the revised common lectionary as the basis for my preaching and used the Christian year as a means for doing creative worship. I served the church for nearly 13 years, which meant that I went through the three-year cycle four times. I enjoyed the challenge of preaching the lections, and it suited my abilities as a preacher. But by the time the fourth cycle came around, I found myself struggling. It may be the influence of my Baptist heritage on me, but I found myself being weary of the repetition. I also had some things that bothered me. Why didn't John have its own year? And I was frequently frustrated by where a passage would start or where it would end. Just before I left the church, there was an article in the October 30, 2013 Christian Century written by Steve Thorngate called, What's the Text? Alternatives to the Common Lectionary. In the article, Thorngate praises the innovation and importance of the revised Common Lectionary but raises similar concerns that I had. He then lists and discusses some alternative lectionaries. The article intrigued me, but I didn't get a chance to explore its possibilities. In the free time I had following the pastorate, I returned to the study of my doctoral training in discipline, theology. I was reading through the works of one of my favorite theologians, Edward Farley, In the second volume of his prolegomenon, Ecclesial Reflection, Farley argues that the reason theology was in the mess that it was was in part because of its dependence upon a type of foundationalism he called the house of authority, canon law for Catholics and scripture for Protestants. From his understanding of the nature of the gospel, he critiques the house of authority, speaks of its necessary collapse, and offers suggestions on doing theology in a post-House of Authority ecclesia. He attempts to demonstrate some of the practical implications of his understanding in his book, Practicing Gospel. It is, in part, in memory of Farley, that I am using the title of that book for the name of this podcast. In that book, Farley has three chapters on preaching. And in those chapters, he makes the case that the lectionary is a remnant of the house of authority that inadvertently continues the troublesome impact of the house of authority on theology. And so he argues for an alternative. That revived my interest in alternative lectionaries. So after rereading the Christian Century article and discovering a few more options in some of my own light research, I've been able to interest three folks, each of whom has been a part of developing an alternative lectionary to be my guest. They're going to share with us their thoughts about why they created the lectionaries they did and what each has to offer. My guests are Dr. Rolf Jacobson, who was professor of Old Testament 
and the Alvin N. Rognes Chair of Scripture, Theology, and Ministry at Luther Seminary in St. Paul, Minnesota. Rolf is the co-creator, along with Dr. Craig Kirstner, of the Narrative Lectionary, which is discussed in the Christian Century article I mentioned and is found online at workingpreacher.org. Dr. Thomas Bandy is an international consultant for churches on issues of culture and leadership and has written over 20 books providing understanding and resources for the challenges of Christian ministry. His lectionary is found in his book, Introducing the Uncommon Lectionary, Opening the Bible to Seekers and Disciples. And Ben Christian. Ben is a pseudonym for a team of people who developed the game A Game for Good Christians and created the revised Uncommon Lectionary, as a companion to the game. So welcome. Uh, thank you for being with me today. I appreciate you being here. And so let's, uh, let's begin uh, with a quote from Tom's book that says, A lectionary is a pervasive strategy that connects all the components of worship, education, and nurture in a church. Change that and you influence everything else. The tactics, anticipated results, and methods to measure success and everything else begin to change as well. If one of the greatest leverage points for change in the church is worship, then one of the greatest leverage points for changing worship is the lectionary strategy around which worship is developed. So Tom, won't you begin by kind of commenting on that? Well, first, thank you, David, for inviting me to be here. And uh, uh, Ben, Rolf, it's a pleasure to book, meet both of you. Um, when I wrote uh, Uncommon Lectionary in 2005, it, it was uh, a transition time, uh, in my point of view, um, between uh, the seeker sensitivity years of the 90s and then the focus on disciple making, which began to emerge more strongly in the millennium. And the thing I realized is that uh, one size, uh, one strategy did not fit all. And the, the strategy that we had, the common lectionary, actually didn't fit either very well. And so uh, recognizing that, um, I tried to develop, uh, not as a program so much as a model, encouraging other people to invent and find their own way. But I, I tried to design what I called a seeker cycle and a disciple cycle, two different very distinct cycles, which implied very different worship designs, probably different formats, different methods, different music, a lot of different things, but, but with uh, very different missional purposes, if I would put it that way. The seeker cycle uh, was assuming um, kind of from the 90s, uh, a general interest in spirituality, some Christian history, inconsistent attendance, people really following the public year, not the Christian year, um, it was written to be more contextual with culture, customized to the particular needs of individuals, and basically trying to present the basic scriptures everyone should know um, uh, to even begin to approach an understanding of Christian faith. And the goal really was not faith formation, but hope bringing. It was, it was really, uh, the seeker uh, cycle is, is, was really designed to try to give people strength for tomorrow and hope for the next day. Um, the disciple cycle uh, was very different. Um, it, it assumed 
uh, a greater maturity of the participant, uh, regular attendance, not only in worship, but also in midweek small group, um, and a greater sensitivity to the Christian year, whether you were Protestant, Catholic, uh, Anglican, uh, or whatever, but a greater sensitivity to the Christian year. And, and the goal was uh, not so much biblical literacy, but uh, biblical conversancy. Um, and so it was organized into five um, broad storylines across the Old and New Testaments. And the goal here uh, was not uh, just to inspire hope, but it really was to try to build faith maturity. Um, David, I should say that um, uh, 10 years later, I, I wrote a book called Worship Ways. At the time I wrote uh, Uncommon Lectionary, I had only, uh, I was just coming away from two speaking tours in Australia, and I had only just been introduced into a whole new world of uh, digital tracking for lifestyle segmentation uh, in the digital world, and had been introduced to missioninsight.com, that has become the primary um, demographic lifestyle search engine churches use today. And it was out of that first uh, interest that I, I wrote Uncommon Lectionary. And then since then, um, my last books have, have been really on all that demographic lifestyle uh, research and its implications. And so I would have to say that in 2005, I, I, I thought of an alternative lectionary as you might say the turning point, the pivotal key thing that churches could do to um, rethink the Christian message and be relevant to the public. And I would say that then 10 years later and 15 years later today, I actually don't agree with that quite anymore. I, I think the lectionary is very important, but um, in place of that, I would, I would say the real pivot are around changing uh, worship and changing the whole ministry of the church is uh, what um, has been called community exegesis. Uh, so that it's not the, the biblical exegesis on the one hand and community exegesis on the other hand uh, had to go together. And um, there's secret sensitivity, there's disciple making and all of that, but um, the alternatives in worship now much more complex and contextually responsive. So um, I'll just stop with that. But that's kind of where that book started and where my own thinking has evolved. Raw for Ben? Comments or thoughts? Go ahead, Ben. <laughs> I guess I'm just thinking that it's it's the, the way that you've described things is actually really fascinating to me. Of uh, the, the process of growth over time, um, something that I I always hope to emulate of like writing something and then coming back to it after looking at looking at what works for a community or what doesn't work for a community, getting new information and making the the adjustments that are needed to better serve our communities. Like that's what was resonating in my mind uh, while listening to you. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I come, uh, I come to this conversation, maybe the one of us, I'm not sure. I don't know um, all of the, your backgrounds, but um, from a liturgical tradition from birth. So uh, I'm a cradle to now Lutheran and um, the Lutheran church in America has um, used um, a church year-based lectionary for centuries. 
but not just one. And the different Lutheran flavors have uh, do now use different ones from each other. And so um, one of the one of the discoveries for me actually, um, as well into my ministry, I was ordained in 1991, was uh, the discovery that um, what we call the Revised Common Lectionary is a very recent um, post-Vatican II um, novum, right? Uh, it's new. It comes out of Roman Catholicism. Um, and it's really based uh, on, well, it's based on the church year, um, but it it's based on the assumption that maybe once in time, a small committee of men could meet somewhere and pick readings for the whole globe. Um, which, especially when you're talking about your contextual reality, Tom, um, it's really, to me, uh, a, that's a, I don't want to be too dismissive of it, but it's something that needs to be strongly challenged, that that the way, the way we need to organize the reading of the text um, right now in my community, uh, in my church, is exactly the same as they want to do it in Italy right now or in Australia. So, um, yeah, so I, uh, I agree with your uh, the, the need to read the context when one thinks about how to organize the reading of Scripture and worship. So you developed the narrative lectionary. Uh, kind of tell us about that and, and, and why you decided to do that. Yeah, you know, it was an accident of the Holy Spirit, I believe. Others would just tell you it was an accident, I think. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I teach Old Testament at Luther Seminary, and our most popular class and um, has been uh, for quite a while, and it's not a required class, um, a, cl a, a course taught by my New Testament colleague, Craig Kester, um, co he called Genesis to Revelation. And he'll teach it once a year, or he has. He's finished now because he's retiring. But um, he actually developed it uh, Sunday morning in a local congregation. And over the course of his, uh, you know, he was in mid-career in the, he, this was in the 90s. Um, he did it at three different churches from September through May, just reading the Bible uh, from Genesis to Revelation. And he, he said at the church where he was a member, he couldn't get six people to come to Bible study on Sunday morning. So he decided to see if he could get 60, uh, if he really put on uh, you know, a serious preparation and really made it into a production um, with energy. And he, soon he had 90. Um, and so he did this in three different churches. And based on some research we had done in a huge uh, Lilly Grant uh, called the Vibrant Congregation Project, we discovered that one of the things, and this goes back to the quotation from Tom's book that you read, we discovered that churches that integrated what the reading was going to be, what the sermon was going to be on, what Sunday school is on, what the women's and men's Bible study in the week, what the kids in confirmation, uh, which is our you know middle uh, middle school um, catechesis in the Lutheran tradition, if everyone is reading the same text, everyone got more out of it. But our whole system is designed not to do that. Our whole system is designed not to do that. And so I, I just said to, uh, um, so I said to Craig, I said, in, in these churches where you did this Genesis to Revelation, 
did any of them preach on the same texts, kind of follow the same story? He, he said, um, no. I invited the, the second two times I did it, I invited them to do it, but the pastors uh, didn't want to. And so um, 10 years ago, I said uh, to a big convention, well, not that big, uh, uh, but it was a fairly large Lutheran convention. And I said, uh, why wouldn't somebody do that sometime? Why wouldn't somebody try preaching Genesis to Revelation from September, which is really the cultural year you're talking about, Tom. The cultural year in our culture starts the day after Labor Day and uh, really goes through the end of the school year. You know, it's, it's also the sports seasons. It's the, um, uh, did I already say school, but it's TV, it's fashion, right? It's new cars, right? The whole New Year's Day is Labor Day. And I said, uh, why wouldn't somebody try that? And a, um, a young man named Daniel Smith came up and said, I just talked 12 churches into doing it. And he said, what's next? And I realized I had uh, inadvertently committed myself to an experiment. I, I really meant for somebody else to try it and write, call me in a year and say, that was a really dumb idea. But instead, it's grown like mad, really, um, since that first uh, Dan Smith came up. And then we didn't even have a name for it at first. We didn't have get a name to, for it until Christmas when uh, uh, one of the users suggested narrative lectionary. So how does it work? I mean, what, is, how, what does it do? So narrative lectionary got, works from September through Christmas in the Old Testament. It's a four-year cycle. Then from just before Christmas in Advent, um, some early, uh, you know, like the early part of Matthew or Luke, um, and then stay in one gospel in order, but moving in, you know, bigger chunks than the, the normal lectionary, moving in bigger chunks through Easter and then early church uh, material um, from Easter till Pentecost Sunday. And then, and then get, getting off the narrative to some non-narrative portions of the Bible in the summer. And our belief is, and we have researched, uh, we've done some research uh, to, uh, that backs this up, that um, in order to, uh, that mature Christians know the biblical story. And so what this does is one gospel per year, the Old Testament lessons are different. So you get four different cycles of Old Testament, but each year it goes from Genesis really through the Old Testament story. Um, you get about 16 weeks. So you get over the course of uh, four years, you get really the key, what we think are 64 key stories. And so you have one preaching text uh, that's assigned. And uh, so then it moves uh, in four times through the biblical story, but with four different gospels. And what we discovered is the heart of the thing is, of course, the gospel story, but you're getting stories in the gospel that you never get in their narrative context. For example, um, right before Holy Week, we're getting, you know, Mark 13, uh, the, the little apocalypse, which, you know, Jesus says that right before he's going to his own death. But in the RCL, you get that in November because it's kind of a sign to, you know, the end times. And, um, the, the the big problem with the RCL, if you want people to know the biblical story, is you're 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 getting four stories, four passages out of context every Sunday, and the next week they're not in order. So you're getting, you know, you're putting the whole thing in a blender for three years, and there um, there's no narrative cohesion. So you've been doing this for ten years now. Yep. Uh, how, how's it fared in the field? 
Well, you know, we don't, um, it's fared very well. People, you know, um, people still, um, still use it. I think it's really designed as an intervention in a system to, to, um, to get the biblical story down. And then, so people use it for four years, then they'll move away and do something that's more contextually relevant. Then they'll come back. Um, and, um, but we don't, I don't know how many congregations are using it because there's no registration, there's no fee, it's free. We, you know, it's it's supported on narrativelectionary.com with a podcast and weekly commentaries that are up and, you know, and some other resources. But we know that churches in Iceland and and in Europe and Scotland and Australia use it, and um, we. Uh, for many pastors, it's a helpful intervention to get the biblical story established, uh, you know, in people's lives. Well, in a way, that seems a little uh, compatible with what you were talking about, Tom, uh, and what you do. It's, it's uh, I mean, formatting tactics and so on have differences, but the, but the goal, the missional purpose, you might say, is is really very similar to what I would think of in a disciple cycle. It, it uh uh, I, I like the word you used, Rolf. Uh, it's like an intervention. And I can easily see how that would be a, be the case, that that it would be an intervention to give. Now, it would take a period of years, um, and I, that may be a challenge today in our mobile world, but um, it would kind of, you might say, reset the, the foundation of that church uh, to be more focused on the bedrock beliefs and, and issues uh, concepts and so on, and then they could begin to, you know, creatively experiment and kind of move beyond that. But I, yeah, I, I would, I resonate with that very much. Well, I'll, I like the word intervention, and I think that's a good segue into Ben's uh, experience in a different way, uh, a different kind of intervention. But uh, Ben, why don't you talk about uh, your your lectionary and why you all created that? Sure. Um, so uh, the, our, the revised Uncommon Lectionary actually came out of another project, which is called A Game for Good Christians. Um, as we were talking before, uh, A Game for Good Christians came from playing the game that should never be named, um, Cards Against Humanity. Um, and some seminary students were sitting around playing that. And there's a certain pairing of cards that were just very spiritual and profound to us in the moment. And we thought, wow, like we could preach off of this. And what would an entire game based off of just the biblical text look like. Um, and so like some of the cards we have are just basic Bible stories, like, you know, three nights and a big fish or mustard seed faith or David carrying a warm sack of 204 skins. Like there are passages of scripture that people might be aware of and others that they're not. Um, but one of the other things we did was look at the revised common lectionary in the, the devising of the game and noticing what passages of scriptures are completely left out. Um, and, you know, as seminary students also, we're noticing things that are just not coming up, often not being talked about in our congregations, in our churches. Um, so like some of the cards we also have were like the Bible in Deuteronomy talks about wet dreams. It, you know, looking at Genesis 6 through 9 as millions of dead people floating past the ark. Um, or looking at the entire book of Joshua and Judges as ethnic cleansing in the name of the Lord. So in the devising of the game, we have some cards that are just funny, but others that put out a more stark way of looking at some passages and at the bottom of every single card is the biblical passage. Um, so we, we did that intentionally so that people wouldn't just send us hate mail. They would also open their Bibles and read and see why did we take the take that we did um, and how we phrase things. In addition to that, we were devising what we call card talks, which are just blog posts that do a deep dive 
into each one of our cards. Um, and we were, you know, those were free. We were posting those online and we actually started getting emails from people um, and comments about, well, it's interesting how you interpreted this Hebrew or the Aramaic on this or the Greek on this. And, you know, what, what references were you using? What, you know, we went through all of that stuff. And then we actually got some people asking, are you going to put this into like one format, like into a book um, that we can just like purchase and have on our shelves instead of like doing a search online? And we thought about it and said, well, could we go back to the revised common lectionary? Could we devise something that is taking the blog posts from our game and organizing them in a systematic way that is running through the liturgical year um, in a way that might be beneficial for both clergy, but also laity uh, to do some deep dive into certain texts, especially the ones that are a little bit more difficult to, uh, uh, to manage at times. Well, now, would it be appropriate to say uh, that underlying what you're doing with that lectionary is the notion that all scripture is inspired. And if it in truly is that we need to address it all, uh, even the parts that we're not wanting to address. Most definitely. Um, one of the, the taglines of our game is that we're the only Christian game, not afraid of the Bible. Um, we, it was in the, at the beginning, um, we actually got some pushback from some folks. We beta tested with clergy and seminary students and family members. And the most interesting thing that happened was the people who were, <laughs> there were certain cards people were very offended by. And the ones that they were the most offended by were when we literally just took scripture and put it on the card with no change from us whatsoever. And they're like, how dare you? And we're like, open your Bible. And then they would read it. And I've never seen that passage before. I'm like, yeah, that's part of the reason we are making this game is because there are difficult things that need to be wrestled with. Um, and sometimes revised common lectionary, not to beat up on the, the RCL, but like one of the things, like I wasn't raised in a liturgical tradition either, but I started attending a church that used revised common lectionary. And when I would preach, they're like, go off of that. And a couple of times there was a difficult passage and the, it's usually from the Hebrew Bible and the Psalm that was associated with it or the New Testament passage or the gospel passage that was associated with, with it were massaging the difficult passage in a way that was like, if you were just reading the text by itself, you'd say, wow, this is, this is hard. But a Psalm was thrown on top of it in a way that sort of said, everything's fine. Don't look too deeply into this passage. It, babies are being, having their heads dashed against the stones, but let's, let's not talk about that. Like there's something else that'll be redemptive about this instead of wrestling with the hard moment in and of itself. Um, so both the game and our lectionary is trying to call attention to those things and saying, to be honest, to be honest in the faith is to wrestle with the difficult things. And that's something that we should do. Thoughts from Tom and Roth. Well, I, um, I totally agree um, that it's, I actually find um that it's usually uh, you'll find a few verses in the middle of a passage that are excised or the last couple of verses. Yep. You know what I mean? Um, and uh, often it is the gospel that the, in the gospel reading is where that'll happen too. I mean, um, so that you'll get, you know, uh, whether it's, I'm just thinking uh, like a, a favorite passage of mine is Luke 10 the sending out of the 70 and you know um 
so Jesus sends out the 70 with nothing, right? You know, they're, they're sent out in order, in order to be the um, guests of other people's hospitality in order to bring the kingdom about, right? But then it says, you know, but I tell you on that day, it'll be more tolerable for Sodom than for that town if they don't welcome you, right? And that, it's just so easy to slice off that verse. If, now, now, I can't remember if the RCL does that, but it's easier for me when I'm reading this with a group to do it. And so it's, um, I think that's exactly right. I, I think it's, um, yeah, I mean, the other thing is the the way the Old Testament is used. Um, it's usually if you have a widow in the gospel lesson, then you're going to have a widow in the Old Testament. If you have a mountain, you're going to have a mountain, you know, a sycamore tree. You know, it's, it's such a facile pairing that... Um, and the, the other the other big problem with the RCL is four texts is too many for most people to absorb. Those of us with seminary degrees um, can do it, right? Uh, we uh, we can go. Oh yeah, that's you know that's Luke. Oh yeah, this is this is from the middle of the I don't know the David story. Although the David story doesn't get read at all in the RCL. So I mean, really, it's only two stories. It's uh, the anointing of David and Bathsheba story. Otherwise, you know, nothing. Uh, uh, in the in the in the eclectic Catholic version of the RCL, so but the four texts is overwhelming for people. Our research showed that it's people cannot contextualize it. Tom, um, as I listened to you, Ben, I I was uh, reminded of uh, a particular uh, piece of research that MissionInsight.com does. Um, I think I mentioned. A lot of my work is wish is with this a powerful demographic lifestyle search engine that today uh, whole denominations subscribe to in behalf of their local churches and and so on. A lot of synods and and everybody. Anyway, one of the pieces of research they do is that is that they can research a particular community or 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 mission field, and they can discern the top reasons for non participation in a church or the top reasons why current church members are considering dropping out of the church. And you kind of get this top 10 list. These are the top reasons. But the reason I thought of that, Ben. The David Letterman of. (laughs) Maybe it's a top 12 list, but anyway. um, uh, But your resource, Ben, would be, that would be a perfect target market for, for that kind of group of people. Um, these are people who are, uh, I often call them um, spiritually yearning, institutionally alienated people. You know, the see a generation, see a later, don't, not interested in the church, that sort of thing. But a lot of their questions are around these kind of tough, awkward um, issues that Christians often try to avoid and preachers tend to uh, change the subject and, and so on. And for that market, um, this resource would uh, be hugely beneficial. It would be a kind of intervention in a in a in a, in a peculiar, peculiarly different way than what Rolf was talking about. Um, but uh, I, to me, that's very exciting to see something like that that could be aimed at, at a market. And and with Mission Insight, Ben, you could target the exact neighborhoods, literally, where you had the highest proportion of population that was considering dropping out of the church for a particular reason. When you talk about putting a small group in the right neighborhood to play the game, you, you could literally pick the house and, and, and place it. I mean, it, it's, it's that, it can be that precise. 
So I, I think that's I think that is a, another very exciting alternative uh, to electioneering. That's really great. Now you each uh, express value, though. I mean, despite your changing uh, perspectives and your critique of lectionaries, nonetheless, you each express value uh, for lectionaries. Uh, kind of each of you talk about that a little bit. Ben, we'll start with you. Sure. Um, like I said, I was raised in a tradition that, uh, and all actually all the creators were raised in traditions that did not use a lectionary. And once I started attending a church that did use it, it was constraining in a beautiful way. Um, and then when I went back to my parents' church that doesn't use a lectionary, um, I found myself still using it. There's some power, there's something beautiful, I guess is a better way of saying it, of knowing that across the entire planet, there's many people preaching from the same text, reading the same text at the same time, maybe coming to widely divergent views on that same text, but there was just something powerful about that in my mind. Um, also, I mean, if you haven't picked up on this, I'm ADHD as I'll get out. So having something that's confining a little bit, um, we're preaching on this, you can, here's, here's your framework. You can operate within that. Don't go too far outside of it. It's also useful. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think primarily the idea of sharing in, you know, the, the church universal in some ways, like outside of just me and the Holy Spirit coming up with something great to speak on for a Sunday, knowing that there are others also reading the same passage and wrestling with it, um, is profound to me. Tom? Um, I, I think the enduring value of, of any kind of lectionary alternative or whatever um, is that churches can have a purpose and a plan. And, and that's really the, the key. There's a purpose to it. There's a purpose to the education, to the worship, and it's a missional purpose. It's a purpose to bless other people uh, it, with uh, an experience of Christ, if I could put it that way. And, and there's a plan to do it, whatever that plan might be. Uh, for me, however, once, once that said, um, lifestyle segmentation um, has, has led me to talk more and more about seven distinct kinds of missionally targeted worship in America today. And in each one has a particular goal in mind, a blessing to impart, whether it's a healing ministry or an educational ministry or an inspirational ministry or a coaching life uh, ministry or a addiction intervention ministry or whatever it might be. And, um, and, as churches today uh, multi-track their worship options um, in order to address the different lifestyle segments that are represented within their mission field or within their community in order to be relevant to them, you have to develop, a, you have to have a purpose and a plan. And, and uh, that the lecture, whatever your plan might be, might be completely different for the people seeking healing versus the people seeking coaching versus the people seeking education or whatever. But there has to be a plan and it's biblically rooted and it's spiritually guided. If I, if I, you know, in that sense, if you can see what I mean, and, um, and there needs to have a result, a measurable outcome. So that if you, if you plan healing worship and you choose the scriptures for it, you ought to be able to, to look at it and say, people have been healed. If, if you have an educational worship service, you ought to be able to measure that and say, well, people know their Bible better or something like that. And in all these different ways, 
if you don't have a plan, you can't measure the outcome. And, and I, the last thing I would just comment, uh, David, is I think that's one of the weaknesses that um, we have had with a common lectionary of the past. And, and that is perhaps centuries ago, in the beginning, there was a purposefulness to it. But, but more and more, it's not. It, it's just a routine. And the measurable outcome is uh, very ill-defined. Maybe it's membership growth or, or financial you know, uh, giving or something like that. So I think um, this experimentation shows the value of a lectionary with a purpose and a plan. But I think also that these alternative lectionaries, plans, um, are, are far more diverse today in America than they were even in 2005 when, when, when I wrote that book. Back then, there were 40 distinct lifestyle segments identified by Experian in America today. Today, there's 71 organized in 19 different groups. And, and so that you see a diversity like you've never seen before. And therefore, a diversity of, of questions, seeking a diversity of answers. And um, it's a bigger challenge than ever before to, to have a purpose and a plan for, for any pastor anywhere. Rolf? Yeah, the um, well, again, I, I'm from a liturgical tradition and uh, grew up uh, with the lectionary and um, never knew there was an alternative to lectionaries uh, because uh, the town I grew up in, uh, religious uh, diversity was there were Catholics in town too. Uh, I, uh, uh, and so, you know, kind of every, I'm from Minnesota, you know, uh, uh, and if you ever listen to Lake Wobegon, it's true, you know what I mean? But, um, uh, but although Gary Sekeler's, not really Lutheran himself. He, he kind of sounds like it on the show. But the um, I think that the revised common lectionary um, was a genius strategy for the high point of Christendom, which was Vatican II, yeah. right? Um, the Western world was Christian. And to get together ecumenically, let's have as many centrally organized churches as there are try to get on the same text so that at the, let's say at the teacher's lounge at high school, the Presbyterians and Episcopalians and Lutherans and Methodists and, and uh, Reformed and Catholics all would have heard roughly the same text. Now, now, of course, it's not really common because you've got a Lutheran and a Catholic and a Methodist lane, right? Especially because of the Catholic with a different Old Testament. But, um, but so it was a genius strategy for Christendom and the outcome was just that, that we would all hear a sermon on the same thing. I don't think there was a missional outcome, but it was an ecumenical outcome. I guess that was the mission, is to show us that we all had more in common than we had separating us. Um, and that, you know, um, that worked. You know, I went to a Roman Catholic college as a Lutheran kid, and I, I, I could kind of really fit right in. Um, because the same texts and stuff. Um, the, the problem is uh, right when Christendom died was when it came into existence, right? And then plus with the information that's available um, to us now through the internet, finding other alternatives to those texts is so easy now. I mean, the, the, the two most common uh, ways that people read 
organized the Bible for reading and worship are the Revised Common Lectionary or Sermon Series. And most sermon series are based on a biblical book, um, based on my research. That is, somebody will just preach through Philippians or they'll preach through Luke. Um, Some will do other things like uh, most of the really most of the big ELCA churches that's a uh, sorry for using an acronym uh I'm a member of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America so it's it's the liberal uh it's the wing of the um Lutheran Church that um votes democrat uh, uh mostly but um so the most of our really big churches do not follow the RCL most of them uh, do sermon series. Like our biggest church, uh, which is uh, the Church of Hope in West Des Moines, Iowa, which um, you know through its campuses has tens and thousands and thousands of members. Um, uh, they they follow sermon series uh, that they pretty much home bake. And then then you know how it is. Uh, a lot of the big churches that really have the resources to 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 create their own sermon series, you know, Saddleback or Church Hope down there, West Des Moines. Then they then they can make them available on their websites. Some some of them sell them. Some give them away for free. Well, I, I I'm struggling with, and uh, from my own perspective, um, this tension of the reality of diversity, uh, the importance of being able to address your context, uh, as each of you have kind of talked about, uh, but then that that need in my mind uh, that is rooted in, you know, uh, the New Testament of, of uh, the church being united, uh, the church being one, one body, uh, and, and that the historical development of the church, my understanding of the, you know, the development particularly of doctrine and, 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 and the unity of worship uh, arose out of, out of the reality of the fragmentation uh, that when you get such diversity, you also got some pretty wild and woolly uh, points of view uh, that didn't reconcile uh, with one another. And um, part of the problem of diversity is how do you hold any kind of center, uh, any kind of shared Christian experience? Um, so y'all kind of talk about that for me. How do we live with that tension of the diversity versus some sense of common unity among us? I'm going to ask Tom a question. So, uh, Tom, uh, based on what I know of your specialty, um, the the Revised Common Lectionary coming out of a high liturgical tradition, Roman Catholicism, in its essence, worship is not supposed to be faith formation. Worship is worship, and the sermon is the proclamation of the gospel. It is not dealing with formation issues. I, I can show you a quotation from a Lutheran liturgical expert who says exactly that, um, that you're supposed to do formation and wrestling with contextual issues elsewhere. But my research says that um, the, the people, uh, North Americans, they're uh, they're they they're so busy. They say, "I'm giving you the hour of worship. Um, that's when you're going to teach me the Bible. I'm giving you an hour a week." Um, is that does that match? What is that? What is your research? Correct me and f- fill that out. Um, 
uh, I think the first thing I would I think of, Rolf, is that um, uh, at one point I, I was describing um, the context of the earliest church. Uh, not you know this is kind of the, the 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 earliest Christian movement up into the early fourth century before before Christendom begins. And, and there were two movements. There was what I call a diocesan movement, and then there was a monastic movement. And from hearing you speak, um, I think you're quite right. I think in the diocesan movement, which eventually became, you know, the dominant force in Christendom, uh, worship was, was really all about uh, praise and thanksgiving. It was not about faith formation. But I think in the, in the monastic movement, it very much was, at least in the context of spiritual life. That, that, that worship was very much tied to the spiritual disciplines and to the spiritual life and to that ongoing deepening uh, faith formation process. It was often a mystical experience. So and I think today in the post-Christendom world, uh, we, are, we are actually returning to a more neo-monastic um, attitude toward uh, the, the, the coming together of, of worship and, and education or worship and learning and, and, and growth uh, and leaving behind the diocesan. And I think there are other reasons for um, uh, to talk about this new kind of emergence of a kind of neo-monastic mindset. It's particularly true among millennials and, and among younger generations. Not so much true among, among uh, boomers and especially early wave boomers and so on. But um, I think while we see a decline, for example, in the diocesan movement, church attendance, you know, lectionaries use and so on. Um, we are seeing in in the midst of the rise of personal religion in America today, we're, we're seeing a kind of renewed interest in this kind of mentoring, intimate um, uh, unity of spiritual experience and spiritual life. And to me, then there's a kind of a, um, I don't think you put a name to it. No one would use the word monastic to talk about it. But to me, it is a kind of return to an earliest church option, which was kind of de-emphasized for several hundred years and now is re-emerging in the post-Christian world. Well, I, I can tell you from my own observation experience that, Rolf, what you said uh, is true uh, of my congregants and, and, and other churches that I observe, is that uh, people are so very busy uh, that one hour is what they give you. And, and that that formation uh, has to take place at the same time uh, as worship. Uh, and, and so, you know, my own uh, thinking about planning and worship always grappled with that. Ben, your thoughts? I would push back. Just a, I mean, I agree with everything that was said, but I would I'd push back just a little bit. Um, millennials and younger are also as impatient as I guess we are, I guess technically I am one, um, I'm an elder millennial. Uh, I've seen a rise in churches of like the small group um, and Bible studies and like that. So like, it's, so it's not just Sunday morning. There's also other times where people are being becoming more invested in wanting to either do some sort of a social justice service project or dive into the word. Like some churches are doing both very well. Others are picking one or the other whole other issue. Um, and I think that was one of the niches that we were targeting both for the game and also for the selectionary um, almost by accident, because we started getting messages from people saying, from like pastors saying, we were using your game for a Bible study, which 
was not something we'd ever imagined. Like we'd never thought about that, but like, like yeah, like we, we start, we invited people over, we were playing the game and that led into like a weekly Bible study or like other pastors saying, or youth pastor saying that he would take a card and preach off of that or lead a discussion just off of that. Um, uh, had friends and other seminarians who have used the revised Uncommon Lectionary for sermon prep, as well as for leading those sort of discussions. Um, so I think there's, <laughs> the word that comes to mind is hope. There's hope that people aren't only expecting the Sunday morning service being the only place that they're being um, spiritually fed the word, that there is a desire to wrestle a little bit more outside of the Sunday morning service. Well, let me ask this, um, and, and maybe in part in light of what some of Tom's research is finding, um, there's a, uh, one of the interviews I had uh, was with a, an organization called Fresh Expressions, uh, which is a new effort at, at beginning churches and which, which targets uh, people groups and in and, and very narrow uh, you know, niches and things like that. Uh, but I guess the question I wanted to ask you, Ben, kind of relating to that is, is that a substitute church form for them? rather than just having the Sunday morning is what they're doing in the Bible studies, basically their church. It's a, it's a difficult question to answer. I mean, I'd say yes in some ways for some people, the answer is definitely yes, that those other um, non Sunday morning things for them, that is church. And I recognize from my own background and like, you know, how I was raised, part of me is pained by that idea, but then part of me is like, why would that be a problem? Like if people are coming together, are um, are coming together to either study the word or to do something under the auspice of community in a Christian spiritual setting, that should be celebrated. Like I know there's there's a part of me that laments like the not, we're not getting together and singing songs on Sunday morning and hearing a sermon and, you know, doing those like official things. But at the same time, yeah, you know, the small group is getting together on a Wednesday afternoon and they're reading scripture together. Or they're sharing life together. They are ministering to their individual needs and to the needs of their community. That sounds like church in a great way to me. I'd suggest that, uh, uh, again, this is a very broad picture, but um, part of what we're seeing that it impacts the idea of lectionary is that the basic unit, if I would call it the basic unit of, of, of worship and nurture has changed. In, in Christendom, the basic unit was the congregation. In post-Christendom, the basic unit was the small group. And, and in the emerging post-Christendom, it appears that the primary unit is a mentoring relationship and uh, the, the kind of one-on-one -on -one, uh, with conversation. There's a demographic research tool that has categorized people. I, I forget the name of it. It's not a, it's not a religious it's a business-oriented one, but it, it describes different age groups gravitating to certain kinds of leaders. You know, they, some gravi boomers gravitate to prophets and, you know, others gravitate to artists and so on. And when it comes to the millennial generation, it talks about gravitating to heroes. And, and so you, you see this sense that um, part of the goal now around adult faith formation or lectionary, whatever we use, is it is not to gather the group or the congregation, but to empower one one Christian 
to be able to mentor one seeker. And, and this new aspect of spiritual life is enormously challenging to laity in particular because now the primary agent of the gospel is not the clergy. It's, it's, the, it's the, uh, you know, the adult or the, or the mature Christian one-on-one -on -one talking with someone who's driven by existential questions seeking eternal answers. Um, and, and I think that, that becomes the emerging post post-Christendom uh, challenge that faces us with worship design, lectionaries, or whatever. Let me, another question for you, Tom. Uh, I'm getting far afield from uh, alternative lectionaries, but um, isn't the basic unit of faith formation, the, hasn't it been the family? And I think that that's one of the things that the Revised Common Lectionary assumed uh, that people were learning the, the biblical stories at home. Uh, and that's why you can mix it all up on a Sunday and have uh, a pastiche, right, of four different texts. The next week doesn't even have to be related to this week. And we know that families don't teach the Bible. Families, when radio came along and then TV, families quit doing scripture-based devotions after dinner. Broad, this is a broad sweep, but... How does that fit into that? Uh... No, I, I think that's an interesting observation. I, I think that um, um, the, this, the, the, the centrality of the family unit uh, for education and nurture and, and personal development and so on, um, uh, uh, that has really quickly disappeared in, in the last, um, well, since about 1965, when, by the way, the church was at its peak in America in terms of finances and membership and so on. And we all know the story about how family diversity and family is breaking up and, and so on. Um, we know, for example, when I consult with churches, one of the rising lifestyle segments in America is, is a lifestyle segment called diapers and debit cards. They, they give them these clever names. Um, but, but these are sing young single parents uh, that are relocating, say, into the town, and you know they're 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 young, they're poor, they have little children, and they're struggling, and, and so on. So that's not your typical family unit. And what's interesting is that that is one of the lifestyle segments that is almost always ignored by traditional established churches because they don't know how to deal with it. And so what I think is happening is you know again you you talk to millennials, and it's interesting when millennials respond to a survey. And they, they're asked about the priorities in their relationships. Family is not there. Friendships is there, but not family. And so I, th I think that you're right, Rolf. I think that Christendom and the church, we have relied on the family as a unit, whether it's an extended family or whether it's a, a nuclear family, but it's a family. And I, and I do think that, that um, for a variety of reasons today, and it may be good, it may be bad, it's just what it is. And, and that is that the family uh, is no longer a reliable uh, uh, center in terms of, uh, of faith formation or worship or, or whatever. And, and therefore, the intimate relationship, the authentic relationship, the mentoring relationship is becoming ever more important. Well, our time is about up, and I am grateful for each of you. So but I wanted to give you a chance, each of you, for final thoughts. 
uh, about where we are and the, the viability of the lectionary and in uh, Christian experience and formation. Uh, so I'd, I'd sign off with this thought. Uh, first of all, thanks. Uh, I learned a lot more than I contributed. I uh, appreciate, uh, appreciate you uh, all. Um, and there's, a, there's other alternative lectionaries out there, as I'm sure you, uh, everyone knows. Um, I would just say there is, no perfect, there is no one perfect way to organize the public reading of Scripture and worship. So don't think you're going to have the perfect way, but there's, you know, there's every, there, every way has its limitations. And so approach it. Um, we, uh, Craig and I, uh, we try to approach it with uh, great humility, uh, and that it's this is just uh, one idea, and there's other better ideas out there too. Tom, um, I, I guess what I would point to is that um, there's there is yet uh, another revolution coming. There is yet another. Uh, you know, we we've had Christendom to post Christendom and so on. And the, and the new post-post-Christendom reality is, is going to present challenges around worship and faith formation, which we, which we have only begun to even think about. Now, um, uh, COVID-19 and, and the post-COVID realities uh, have really just accelerated and kind of the tipping point into that world. It hasn't caused it necessarily. But I think, too, the two major factors that are going to challenge us around worship design and, and uh, faith formation and education um, uh, that we have to get our head around when we think about anything around lectionary. And the, and the first big challenge is the rise of the fastest growing religious movement in the world, which is, which is generally called personal religion. It, it, it's just that syncretistic, personal, individual. And, and that's, even when you talk to church members, many of them are more deeply embedded into personal religion than they are into their own churches. The second is, of course, the virtual world, that, that the virtual revolution in education has only just begun. And we're just seeing people scramble for it now. And of course, the virtual uh, revolution in worship is, is also just begun. And I think that those two factors, the, the rise of personal religion and the emergence of the virtual world, uh, are, are whole new challenges that we have only begun to think about as we plan and purpose our strategies for the future of the church. Well, Ben, we're going to leave you with the final word, uh, particularly because you being a part of this younger generation that's coming up. Uh, what do you have to say? No pressure. Um, I think I would echo part of what uh, Rolf said, that there's no, there's never going to be a perfect lectionary. There's never going to be that perfect sermon series. Um, and I think one of the big things that all generations need, but especially like my generation and younger, uh, is pastors, clergy, laity, people who are willing to have the difficult conversations, um, are willing to crack open the Bible, regardless of what sermon series, regardless of the, the plan that they have, that the purpose is to educate people and bring them closer to Christ through actually wrestling with the word. Um, I know I was raised in a, uh, a rather conservative evangelical uh, background and I would ask a lot of questions. And I, you know, it wasn't until seminary that I actually felt I got certain answers to questions. Um, often it was, well, well, we'll talk about that later. Don't worry about that. Just trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding and just call it a day. Um, 
I think as long as churches are going about educating people with openness and honesty and a willingness to wrestle, um, that will bring more people into the door. And once they see um, faith both talked about intellectually and intelligently and lived out by the people who are around them, you know, that, that converts souls to Christ. Well, thank you all uh, for being my guest. Thank you, David, and everyone. Thank you. You are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. The music for this episode comes from a clip of a song called Father Let Your Kingdom Come that is on the Porter's Gate Worship Project Work Songs album and used by permission by the Porter's Gate Work Project. You can purchase the album and learn more about the worship project by going to the website, theportersgate.com. This show has as its purpose enabling you to hear the voices of the Christian left and about the issues and concerns that are of interest to the Christian left. Practicing Gospel, Inc. is a nonprofit organization. If you like what you've heard, go to my website at practicing-gospel.blubrry.net to subscribe and hopefully to donate. Your participation will help me continue this effort. Thank you for listening and for your support. Blessings. May the 